0: The, or co-direct the Ethics, Peace, and Global Affairs MA program and teach human rights courses. Um, this is all possible also because of Alyssa Rorick, who is, I hope I said that right, Alyssa, uh, the president of the Society for Ethics, Peace, and Global Affairs, and uh, Lauren Reese, who is the program coordinator for the EPGA program. Uh, and then, of course, Ann Wright, uh, who is with us, and Chris Woods, who will be with us via Skype. Um, I, I don't want to talk too long because I want to give our guests the opportunity to Uh, make their presentations. But um, because I have done my own research into this, I just wanted to share a few thoughts. Um, I mean, some of my research has been around, primarily around the legality, uh, and that's not because I don't think they are immoral. I I do think the drone strikes, uh, at least the way that they're carried out, um, are of of questionable morality. Um, But my own research has been based in looking at you know, even if we accept all the legal arguments around the sovereignty issue, so uh, does the United States have the consent or the legal right under international law to, to launch strikes in Pakistan and Yemen outside of the recognized battlefield of Afghanistan, if we accept that and if we also accept that um, the laws of war are the applicable body of laws because this is happening in uh, as part of a non-international armed conflict and therefore hostilities allow for the laws of war to apply for the use of lethal force, uh, the argument I basically have made is that even if we accept all these arguments, still the drone strikes are of questionable legality under international humanitarian law. Um, you know, Chris will probably talk a bit, a little bit about uh, attacks on funerals and uh, on first responders, or, or the use of double taps. Uh, these are certainly of questionable legality, uh, especially in terms of the principle of distinction. So, distinguishing between civilians and non-combat, I'm sorry, non-combatants or civilians and combatants. Uh, there there is also questions about the principle of proportionality so are uh, is the loss of innocent life excessive to the uh, advantages or or intended advantages gained by launching the strikes and you know the one one example i would just use that came up earlier in the week is there's the one case of attacking a funeral uh, the funeral was intentionally created in order to attack uh, a Taliban leader and so basically the a plot was developed to kill a lower level Taliban member in order to then have a funeral for that person, at which case the higher Taliban leader would come to the funeral, and then that person could be attacked. So a civilian civilian congregation was intentionally created in order to attack someone that they wanted to kill. Um, that to me is a clear uh, indiscriminate use of force. Uh, you're clearly not discriminating against civilians, and you could maybe even argue as far as intentionally targeting civilians because you intentionally created that scenario. Um, you know, first responders again have been attacked. So when individuals who converge on scene of a drone strike are also attacked. The assumption is being made without necessarily the intelligence to do so to assume that those who are converging on that first attack are militants themselves and are therefore justifiable targeted or they can be justifiably targeted. Um, and these are just you know some of the examples. There's other examples where only civilians were present, such as the strike on the wedding in Yemen, um, and and other examples as well. And so, you know, I, I think that even when we use the loosest interpretation, uh, the drone strikes. And in some cases, the methods behind the drone strikes do violate international law and could constitute war crimes as part of a systematic use of of these methods. And so I will will leave it there. I'm sure that some of this will be touched on by our guests. And uh, so let me introduce Chris Woods. Chris Woods is a London-based investigative journalist specializing in conflict and national security issues. For many years, a senior producer with the BBC's Panorama and Newsnight. He most recently established and wed the Bureau of Investigative Journalism's drone team, uh, looking into covert operations, as well as drone strikes uh, in Yemen, Pakistan, and Somalia. Uh, awarded the Martha Gellhorn Prize for Journalism in 2013. He's just finishing a book for Hearst and um, Oxford University Press, in Injustice, which examines the role of armed drones across the War on Terror's many battle spaces. And so he may talk a little bit about his research in that book, which will be coming out, I believe, in the spring. And so with that, let's give Chris a welcome, and we'll turn it over to him. Um, Thanks very much, Jeff. And uh,
1: hopefully you can uh, hear me nice and clearly, and also understand my terrible British accent. Um, I'm going to range backwards and forwards between um, conventional battlefield use of armed drones, remotely piloted aircraft, and uh, their use off the, the hot battlefield, where I suppose the most media attention has been focused in recent years, which is in places like Pakistan, uh, Yemen, and Somalia. Um, we've seen just this past six weeks a, a, a huge um, US military campaign kicking off again in Iraq. Uh, today, I suspect uh, we're going to see the uh, CENTCOM announced that uh, US airstrikes in Iraq have passed 200 uh, since um, Combat operations began there back on August the 8th. To give some kind of context to that, that's a higher tempo even than the US is carrying out in Afghanistan at the moment. More airstrikes taking place in Iraq than any other theater of conflict that the US is presently involved in. And that that was ramped up from almost zero. Uh, The Pentagon won't tell me exactly how many times drones are being used in that mix, but as far as I can tell, Around half of all days when airstrikes are taking place in Iraq, armed drones are taking place in in those actions. So, armed drones have come to dominate the modern battle space. Um, In Syria this week, uh, we've seen perhaps 70 strikes in the first few days. Drones used on both days now in Syria, and I suspect they've been used today as well. And of course, with Syria, we've had the first reports of civilian casualties. Uh, on the first day of bombing. Got almost no coverage in the media, uh, but uh, upwards of 11 civilians, mostly from one family, uh, credibly reported killed by a number of NGOs in Syria. Now, interestingly, those deaths uh, appear to have been at the hands of cruise missiles and not of drones or precision airstrikes from manned aircraft. And I, I think that's interesting and something I want to touch on a little bit later. I'm sure Anne is going to talk to this, and it's been a Code Pink position for a long time. Um, Drones and their use in warfare, it's it's contested, make the likelihood of war that much greater. And I think that position, which which Code Pink has had consistently for a long time, is really no longer um, up for debate. When Obama announced that he was ruminating on his strategy for Iraq and Syria, he uh, held up the models of u.s actions in yemen and somalia the secret trade wars going on in those two countries as the viable model the model that could be exported to iraq and syria and what did he mean by that he meant that there were no boots on the ground in either of those countries uh, and also uh, that uh, the warfare was predominantly remote it was uh, remotely operated Uh, with personnel predominantly flying those missions from the United States or from surrounding countries. Now, I get a daily update uh, from CENTCOM uh, in my email box. Uh, That's the one that will tell me we've gone over 200 strikes in Iraq today. CENTCOM have decided to be fairly forthcoming about these campaigns that are going on at the moment. The one thing that they won't tell us about, though, are casualties. They won't tell us who they think they're killing. Uh, They won't uh, tell us the estimates of the numbers, uh, and so on. And I think that issue of casualties ties in so tightly with the two issues that that really um, we've been asked to talk about today, the morality uh, and the legality of US drone strikes. Because unless we understand who's being killed and in what context, it's very hard to reach a decision on either of those cases, on either of those positions. On the lawfulness of drone strikes, it's it's a given. It's an assumed within the Beltway, within Washington, that drone strikes are lawful, whether they're on the conventional or unconventional battlefields. Um, As you might suspect, it's not really as straightforward as that. On the regular battlefield, drones are effectively just another weapon system. And and, and I, I would accept that but nevertheless when a when a war is predominantly or all uh, carried out by drones, there are other issues of of legality involved and and this has led as as i'm sure you all know to these huge struggles between congress and and the executive in terms of uh and uh, congressional authority for conflicts and so on off the hot battlefield uh, jeff uh, said earlier um, if we accept that strikes are are lawful off the hot battlefield. Well, I have to say that is a very American position. Uh, and there are a few very reputable American scholars who, who, who take issue with that. Uh, but it's generally the consensus in US political, military, and legal circles that these strikes are lawful. Well, of course, that is not the view internationally. Other than Israel, which is the only other country to have this position, it is the view internationally that these strikes are generally unlawful, except in exceedingly specific circumstances. And they revolve around issues uh, usually of imminence, and by that true imminence, uh, not the imminence that uh, Trevor Timms was talking about in The Guardian yesterday, which means, well, whenever it happens. So the legality um, of drone strikes off the hot battlefield, um, these are targeted killings. These are assassinations on the territory of other nations uh, with which the United States is not at war, where there is generally consent, although not always, uh, from the host countries. And sometimes, but not always, there is a conspiracy between the United States and those host countries uh, to cover up the role of armed drones. That's less of an issue now under the Obama administration. It was a significant issue under the Bush administration. Um, In my view, and through the research from my book and the research that others have done, the very pursuit of that strategy has led uh, to some extremely problematic practices uh, in these countries. The effort to cover up or conceal the role of the United States has, if you like, created uh, a, a situation in which both lawful lawlessness, or, or actions that, that air towards lawlessness, and very problematic issues around um, morality, uh, are often more likely. Um, just to sort of step out of that slightly for a bit of context, the predator and the reaper drain were, were actually created as aerial assassination tools. Uh, with significant input by the CIA. Uh, And however you dress up their use, um, however you want to portray the drones, effectively that's what they're best at, assassination. Uh, They are uh, precision weapons that uh, can track targets in real time and uniquely through their ability to loiter and have that intelligence analyzed back in real time uh, to deliver um, ordnance to a target. They, they are assassination tools. Um, there's, there's evolved, if you like, a gray area between morality and lawfulness, even on the conventional battlefield as a result of what armed drones actually do. And interestingly, the, the British, which is the third country presently to use armed drones in, in war, uh, who only use their drones on the conventional battlefield, have admitted that, for example, in 2012, they carried out at least seven assassinations on the battlefield using armed drones. This is through their own uh, daily uh, uh, press releases that they put out. These are seven clearly uh, discussed uh, events in which the British tracked over a long period of time, targeted, and then killed individuals with no discussion of whether those individuals could be captured. Sometimes they were observed for six or seven hours uh, before those strikes actually took place. uh, for those who say that drones don't actually change warfare, I would argue that it, 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 it does, that they are unique, and also that, that the, the purpose for which drones were created, assassination, has, if you like, begun uh, to affect uh, the, the regular battlefield as well. Uh, and the use of targeted killings of assassinations on the regular battlefield has has become a commonplace. Um, but it, Key contentions, of course, are around targeted killings, assassinations off the hot battlefield in Yemen, uh, in Pakistan, in, in Somalia, and in uh, Gaza, I would add to that list. Uh, Yemen is probably the, the, the least reported conflict in the U- United States in terms of consistency uh, for the use of armed drones. But if you like, it is one of Obama's wars. The the drones have been there since 2011, although US targeted killings began there two years beforehand. They've ramped up from from zero to a very um, heavy rate of of strikes. they are diminished at the moment, I suspect, because a lot of those assets have been pulled higher up the gulf towards Iraq and Syria. In Pakistan, as, as I'm sure you all know, almost 400 Uh, CIA bombings uh, since 2004, killing an estimated 2,500 people, around 400 of whom thought to be civilians. Somalia, we have a small number of drone strikes, probably no more than 10 or 12 drone strikes in Somalia. And Gaza, where drones have been used sometimes for targeted killings outside of very hot periods. For example, the recent conflict with um, uh, Hamas Uh, More often, the drones are used kinetically in Gaza during those those hot periods. Um, What we've seen away from the regular battlefield, away from situations in which the military is in charge of, of the use of armed drones, but also where IHL is clearly in play, is the evolution of tactics which have in themselves proved highly problematic. And Jeff mentioned the targeting of rescuers and first responders. That was an, um, an investigation I first did for the, the London Sunday Times uh, getting off three years ago now. Um, also, the deliberate targeting of people going to funerals. These are fairly uh, well-known uh, problems. Um, signature strikes, again, something that uh, we, we hear a lot about, but, but uh uh, on, on, uh, in places like uh, Fatah in Pakistan have become hugely problematic. Signature strikes are the targeting of groups of individuals whose identities aren't known, but whose patterns of behavior are thought to conform to those of militants. And what we've actually seen with signature strikes in, in uh, Pakistan in particular is that it leads to large numbers of deaths, And the risk of civilian deaths when signature strikes take place is often significant. So for example, the famous uh, or infamous Jirga strike of uh, March 2011, when upwards of 40 people were killed in the village of Datakel, that was a signature strike. The Americans had stumbled across uh, that Jirga the day before when they carried out another strike on the village had it under observation for almost 24 hours. And then against the express recommendation of Pakistan of the US ambassador to Pakistan, the CIA went ahead and carried out that strike in Datakal, killing upwards of 40 civilians. Every one of those civilian deaths, by the way, the United States still denies and, and claims that no civilians died that day. There are other uh, problematic tactics as well the uh, classification of military-aged males, uh, or males over 16, as legitimate targets if they're in the vicinity of a strike. The logic of that appearing to be, well, if they're in the vicinity of a a suspect, they must be guilty. Uh, This is immensely problematic. If you uh, accept, as we should, that these drone strikes in Yemen or Pakistan are taking place in a civilian context, these are in an insurgency context. And so, let's say a, an insurgent, a known insurgent, is in a village interacting with individuals. It cannot be assumed that any male individuals that he interacts with are by necess- necessity Taliban or Al Qaeda. We simply can't assume that. When Pakistan evacuated North Waziristan recently to begin its, its conflict against militant groups there, it, 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 it forced out 450,000 people from North Waziristan, civilians. The estimate of the civilian population of North, North Waziristan actually was only 350,000. Turned out there were 100,000 more civilians there than anyone had realized. So these are strikes taking place in civilian contexts, but often with a military approach. And that has uh, problems attached. What is targeted as well, immensely problematic, uh, some great research recently been done by forensic architecture at Goldsmiths in London with the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, looking at what structures the CIA has targeted in Pakistan. Very valuable research. Uh, just for context, around about 2008, 2009, uh, CENTCOM in Afghanistan began banning uh, airstrikes on homes and villages. There were two reasons for that. One was the propaganda value. Two was the significantly higher likelihood of civilian casualties because you're you're bombing domestic structures. It's logical. It makes a great deal of sense. And to bomb a house, a home, in Afghanistan today requires a great deal of paperwork across the border in Pakistan, effectively the same conflict, and it has been for for four or five years now, a counterinsurgency rather than anti-al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda has mostly been destroyed in the tribal areas. Uh, The CIA is still predominantly destroying homes, domestic domestic structures. Uh, There is no clear understanding of why these different rules are operating on different sides of the border. But what we have seen is a significantly higher number of women and children killed in Pakistan than in Afghanistan as a result of airstrikes hitting these domestic structures. And then, as Jeff said, we have these strikes, the deliberate targeting of rescuers um, and the deliberate targeting of funerals. Now, my research on the targeting of rescuers found that on almost every occasion, the CIA targeted rescuers. It did kill Taliban or Al-Qaeda. I mean, that's very, very clear. The problem was that 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 same research showed that on almost every occasion they were almost always killing villagers as well. And the reason for that is because uh, villagers, the the, the, the structures being targeted, are are within villages. When a house is destroyed, villagers were coming forward to assist in the rescue. Sometimes of their neighbours. Uh, the Taliban or al-Qaeda may have rented a home from, from somebody. But also, because we're talking about very remote areas where there is not an emergency response service as we would anticipate it, the first port of response is your neighbor in a situation where there's been a, a catastrophic event. And in fact, research by NYU and Stanford found that as, signatures, uh, as the targeting of rescuers became more commonplace, Actually, uh, responders from hospitals were, in fact, delaying going to some of these remote villages by up to three or four hours for fear of signature strikes. So the, 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 the issue for villagers was, do we watch our neighbors die in front of us and not intervene? Or do we intervene? I have to say, sadly, eventually, the decision became, no, we don't intervene. And it's now common practice in, in Fata when a strike occurs for villagers to not involve themselves in rescue. And of course, if we, if we follow the logic through of that, if, though, if th- th- there was an error in a strike and it's civilians dying, um, and yet villagers are not allowed to intervene, that is uh, a significant problem. So um, th- there are some very problematic and uh, clearly Uh, many would argue unlawful actions being carried out by the CIA, by special forces. Uh, This has predominantly been in Pakistan. There have been some problems in in Yemen as well, although I would say significantly less than Pakistan. Um, But back to the drone question itself, and just just, just summing up really, Um, drones in and of themselves are not, in my view, inherently a problematic weapon. Under the Geneva Conventions, there is a requirement on parties to a conflict uh, to employ the weapons least likely to cause civilian casualties. And I think remotely piloted aircraft have the potential to improve the lot of civilians on the battlefield. I do think that's a potential. And I mentioned earlier, those civilians killed in the first night of bombing of Syria almost certainly were killed by cruise missiles. Very messy weapon, very large weapon, uh, indiscriminate generally when it lands, uh, causing fairly catastrophic damage. Compare that, say, to a Hellfire missile uh, weighing around 100 pounds. Some variants of Hellfire missiles now don't even carry explosives. They use kinetic energy only in a concrete head. Uh, to, to, to damage and kill. So drones have a potential to limit casualties on the battlefield and are something that perhaps we should consider uh, welcoming. But without political intent, that becomes meaningless. And the reason I say that is you have to look at Gaza, uh, what happened recently with a staggering number of civilians killed uh, in Israeli actions in Gaza, or in the CIA's uh, historic actions in uh, the tribal areas up until, say, 2011, where, at best, an indifference towards civilian casualties, I would argue, and at worst, a near criminal disregard of civilian casualties, means that any potential benefits that drones might bring to the battlefield are squandered while at the same time making the likelihood of conflict that much greater because of the perceived benefits uh, and freedoms which armed drones are seen to bring as far as as political leaders are concerned. So I just want to leave it there. I'm sure there'll be lots of questions. And and, uh, throw over to Anne, who I'm sure will have plenty to say on this as well.
0: And you want me to pull up the uh,
2: presentation?
0: Yeah, we want. OK, okay. Um, so let me just give Anna a brief introdu- introduction. Excuse me. Uh, Anne is a retired colonel, uh, spent 29 years in the US Army and the Army Reserves. She was a diplomat in the State Department for 16 years, serving in the US embassies of Afghanistan, Sierra Leone, Micronesia, Mongolia. Kyrgyzstan, Grenada, and Nicaragua. She resigned in 2003 in protest of then impending invasion of Iraq, and in 2009 she co-authored the book *Descent: Voices of Conscience*. So let's give Anna a welcome.
2: Thank you. Yeah. Oh, let's see if I can handle this. Yeah, there we go. Okay, Jeff, thank you so much. Alicia, thank you. Lauren, uh, it's great to be right here at American University and the School of International Studies. Sir. Service. Service. Okay. It was an S somewhere. Um, I appreciate very much what you all are doing as students here and trying to sort out your your vision of what uh, international service may be. We, we want to thank Chris Woods from London who in his service as a journalist has really been able to shed light on a lot of policies, international policies, that if you become a Uh, uh, employee of our U.S. government or any other governments that you'll have to be dealing with. I myself was in the U.S. diplomatic corps for 16 years, and as Jeff said, I resigned in 2003, 11 years ago, uh, in opposition to the war in Iraq. Um, Since then, um, there have not been enough... The number of resignation times I could have done since then are enormous for the types of foreign policies that I believe our country has disastrously embarked on. And one of these is the use of these targeted killing assassin drones, assassin drones. Um, This little slide talks about taco drones. I mean, there are some good uses for little unmanned aerial vehicles. but. there are also some uh, very bad uses, which I think are getting our government into really bad trouble. Um, but as in America, you know, if there's enough business potential for it, it's going to have a lot of people in our government working for it. So now all of these companies, General Atomics, Boeing, Lockheed, Northrop Grumman, you know, all of these, they have their own caucus in the US Congress to help them uh, get more business. You know, now we train in the United States Air Force more pilots of these drones, of Reaper and Predator drones, than we train fixed-wing aircraft, manned aircraft, uh, more pilots for for drones than we do for fixed-wing aircraft. So that just gives you an idea of how prevalent this weapon system now is in our own U.S. military. Here's a slide of where the pilots of these drones sit. They sit in uh, uh, environmentally controlled areas, tens of thousands of miles away from where the actual shooting of the weapons that kill militants and kill innocent civilians are. Uh, We have the same problems for these pilots of of, uh, assassin drones as we have uh, for men and women that are on the actual battlefield, post-traumatic stress. Uh, is very prominent among pilots of drones because they watch. They watch an area for 24 hours at a time, perhaps, watching what a particular person is doing of these signature strikes. Or perhaps a targeted assassination, and we talk about morality and legality of these things, a targeted assassination that is designated by the President of the United States on Terror Tuesday. Every Tuesday, our 16 intelligence agencies of the United States take to Barack Obama a list of people that they feel are jeopardizing, threatening U.S. national interests so dramatically, so dangerously that they should die, that they should be killed, that they should be killed without any neutral body like a court looking at the evidence that the intelligence agencies are showing and making a determination of, well, uh, you don't, you're saying this, but where is the evidence behind it? So the President of the United States now takes the word of intelligence agencies, the infallible U.S. intelligence agencies. Infallible, I mean, they have been perfectly correct on everything, right? Weapons of mass destruction, Iraq. I mean, the list of things that our U.S. intelligence agencies have missed is legion. And yet, the President of the United States is now to his uh, criminal jeopardy, in my opinion. I mean, I think what Barack Obama is doing now, as President of the United States, of being the chief prosecutor, judge, jury, and now executioner on Terror Tuesday by saying, yes, I will authorize you to murder, assassinate this person, this person, and this person. That indeed, he is, uh, he is acting outside of his legal authority as President of the United States. And I think truly it is to his, his own jeopardy, his criminal jeopardy. As Chris mentioned in his presentation, what we look at and what we see here in the United States is, a, is very different from what the rest of the world looks at us. That many of the policies that we have um, are are in other parts of the world called criminal policies, criminal policies. And some of the blowback from some of these criminal policies, I think we are seeing right now playing out of the, the invasion and occupation of Iraq 11 years ago. Well, I think what we're seeing right now with ISIS now in Syria and Iraq are a direct result from that, a direct result from it. Uh, I think the blowback that you see from the use of these assassin drones in Afghanistan, something the U.S. military will not talk about, they will not tell you who those people are that are killing American soldiers. You know, in the last three years, we have had more American soldiers that have been killed by Afghan military and national police that we have trained than have been killed by the Taliban more people that we are training turn their weapons on the trainers and kill them than the Taliban kill our soldiers. Now the interesting thing is that our government is not telling us who these people are. And my supposition, and I've traveled to Afghanistan, I was there in 2001, I helped reopen the U.S. Embassy in Kabul, Afghanistan in 2001. Then after I resigned from the government, I've been back five different times. I've talked to relatives of people who have been killed by by drones. Um, They are not telling us the background of those people who are turning their weapons on our soldiers. But my supposition is that if you really got to the bottom of this, most of those guys come from the tribal regions along the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan. And they will be coming from the villages that have been targeted by our drones. You know, there's a, there is a blowback to these drones. There is a real blowback. Here in the United States, Times Square was almost blown up by a young man from Connecticut who was so outraged about the use of these drones that he drove his, his uh, Nissan Pathfinder into Times Square, had it loaded with explosives, and it hadn't, if it had not been for a vigilant uh, vendor on Times Square who said, there's this, told the cops, I think that's my phone, my apologies. Um, there's a car that's parked out here, and it shouldn't be parked out here, and it's been parked out here for a while, and I think you, the police, ought to go over and check on it. And when they did, they saw what all it was. Though well, this guy, he's in prison now, but he said, the reason I was willing to blow up Times Square and spend the life, and if I didn't get killed there, but spend the, left, the rest of my life in prison is because what America is doing with these drones is wrong, is wrong. I mean, if you look at the blowback of all of this, this the use of these things, um, and it's the blowback can be very, very uh, easy. I mean, the the probability, the possibility of anyone using these. I mean, creating small little drones. What we see in in um, a lot of these, these are big drones that we see, the rapers and <coughs> reapers and predators. But uh, there are other small drones, small drones that are that have been used in other places. And I'll just kind of go through Iraq, Afghanistan. Uh, Libya, Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, the Philippines, perhaps Mali, Syria for sure. Um, some of the people that have been killed, some of the young people, the kids that have been killed by these. Um, the numbers of uh, uh, high-value targets uh, that we hit, yeah, there they certainly have been, but there are thousands of people who have been killed by these drones that had nothing to do with any sort of militant activity. Uh, these statistics that you see right here, uh, uh, that are part of the Bureau for Investigative Journalism that Chris has worked with for the longest time, that have been, has been one of the premier organizations to track down who's been killed, where, and what, what was it all about. I mean, Chris has been to Pakistan and uh, I think probably Afghanistan too. I too have been to Pakistan. I've talked to victims of, of uh, uh, families of victims of drone strikes. I've been to Yemen. I've talked to uh, families of victims of uh, drone strikes there. We've we've talked to, uh, you know, people that will tell us that, yeah, there perhaps there were some militants in the area, but, boy, your guys got it all wrong, the people that they were, that they killed. Um, when you look at the broad breadth of where the United States is using uh, these assassin drones, here's pictures of in Yemen, in Yemen, where we talked with... Uh, uh, we talked with the father of an American citizen who has been assassinated by assassin drones. You know, there have been three Americans in the last uh, three years, and all of them within, uh, you know, in two separate attacks. Uh, Anwar al an American citizen born in New Mexico. His father uh, went to school here in New Mexico. He, um, he was born here. He, was, he lived in Falls Church. He was invited after 9-11. He was, he was an imam. He was invited by the Pentagon to come in an inter-religious service after 9-11 to the Pentagon. And yet, he started looking at what the U.S. was doing. These assassin drones that were killing people in Yemen, and he started talking about the United States had better stop using these things because they're killing innocent civilians, killing innocent civilians. He went to Yemen. He started talking. The United States said he was infuriating and flaming tensions there, and two drone strikes tried to kill him. Missed him. His dad filed a a lawsuit in U.S. federal court saying to the U.S. government, if you want to bring my son to trial, an American citizen to trial, fine. Bring him to the court, put out the evidence, let's see what it is. And his son was in Yemen, but his, his father actually had been the minister of agriculture for the country of Yemen. He went to the president of Yemen and said, you're giving the authority to the United States to go after my son. You and I have been buddies for a long time. I know where my son is. You know where my son is. If you want him alive, we can bring him in. Before any of that happened, another strike hit. Anwar al-Awlaki was killed and Samar Khan, an American journalist, was killed. Two weeks later, Anwar al-Awlaki's 16-year-old son in another part of Yemen, was targeted by the United States of America and killed along with four other people. So these are things that we're all very concerned about: targeting of American citizens. You know, the the, the what what are we going to do about these? Are we going to allow our own uh, our own law enforcement systems to start using drones? And if they do that, are they going to put little weapons on them? We already know that one. Uh, one law enforcement agency outside of Houston in Montgomery County uh, had, uh, had bought a drone and was negotiating to try to put various kinds of armaments on this little drone. In my opinion, fortunately, it crashed. So that particular one is no longer around. But there are a lot of law enforcement uh, organizations that want to use these drones and put weaponized uh, devices on them. So we, we have a, a major problem on our hands, uh, and as far as I'm concerned, as from the military perspective and as a former U.S. diplomat. I think, you know, when you know that there's a weapon system that is, is causing great blowback and it potentially can, can have blowback so that it is harmful for citizens of the United States, I think we ought to really take a good look at what this is. And so we call upon you all as good, fine uh, students here at American University to think about this, and we would like to invite you to uh, to get involved in more discussions about these drones. And in fact, on August or pardon me, on October fourth, we're having a global day uh, of action on drones. We'll have events here in Washington D.C. We've got uh, uh, all sorts of stickers that are available out here uh, on uh, stop killer drones. And Medea Benjamin, who's one of the co founders of Code Pink Women for Peace, um, has an excellent book out called Drone Warfare Killing by Remote Control. And we've got a couple of copies over here if anybody wants to purchase one for a very uh, student uh, sensitive price. (laughs) So, uh, with that, why don't I stop and then we um, um, field any questions you have? Thank you very much.
0: pull Chris back up on the screen. Um, just a, I just wanted to make a, a couple comments, and I'm, I'm just going to ask a question to get us started here, and then, and then we'll turn it over. Um, one of the things I just want to know, you know, again, about the importance of the Bureau of Investigative Journalism's work, uh, the Columbia Human Rights Clinic, or Columbia Wall Center, um, they did their own sort of research in the civilian casualties. And they said that the Bureau's methodology and findings were by far the closest uh, to what they had, so they actually sort of confirmed for the most part. And where there were some differences, uh, the bureau worked with uh, Columbia to um, to bring the numbers closer together. So, um, and meanwhile, some of these other uh, Long War Journal and some of the others um, were not willing to do that same thing, and in a lot of the cases underestimated the casualties uh, significantly. Um, the other thing I, I was going to mention is, you know, Anne had the slide of the 70 high-value targets only making up 2% of the victims. Uh, you know, in Pakistan, using the Bureau's numbers, I came up with a range of four to one to five to one. For every four to five militants killed, one civilian was killed. Now, that was based on, A, you got to consider that that means a lot of people that were probably really just insurgents fighting against their own governments were killed by drone strikes, and then civilians were also killed at the same time. Um, but also, Going back to the counting methodology, when questions were raised about, so this methodology was released in a May 30th or so, 2012 New York Times expose, and about three dozen current and former officials um, gave information to this, all of course anonymously and of course without being charged with espionage, um, unlike others who have released information. Um, When asked about this, unnamed officials said they didn't. They didn't question the counting method. They said we don't intentionally target all military age males, so they never actually addressed whether they count all military age males killed by drones and therefore the failure to respond to that specific um, piece of information tells me that in fact they do count all military age males killed in drone strikes as militants unless proven posthumously that they were innocent, of course, which case they're dead. And also, if it happens in Pakistan and Yemen and the U.S. government doesn't actually acknowledge that it killed these people, then how can you actually challenge it anyway? So um, the, other, the, the last thing I was just going to say is, you know, the, the blast radius, uh, at least according to Living Under Drones, the NYU Stanford report that Chris referenced earlier, I believe says that the blast radius is 50 to 65 feet uh, including shrapnel, and so if you consider, there's, I don't know if you, you remember the story, but there was a story where three day laborers in Yemen were killed, and they just happened to be in the vicinity of a target, and so, you know, President Obama said that there has to be, for a drone truck to be launched, there has to be near certainty that no civilian, civilians will be killed in the process, but knowing the blast radius from a Hellfire missile, an attack was launched despite this day laborer, um, you know truck carrying three day wearers being in the vicinity, and a number of them were killed and others injured um, yeah, so I mean I, the last thing I was just say going back to the funerals is if you take the blast radius from Hellfire missile, even if we assume the missile like lands on the intended target, still everyone within the blast radius of that missile will be killed or injured, and nonetheless, those strikes have happened on multiple occasions so Just want to throw all that out there. Uh, Correct me if I was wrong on anything. But I I guess my question—you know—you guys have talked. Both of you mentioned how outside the United States, the drone strikes are viewed um, differently than than in our country or in the United States. And so I'm wondering, you know, do have 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 either of you ever been? So, Anne you're a former member of the military, foreign service. Chris, you've done um, all this excellent investigative journalism work. So I think both both of you have, you know, there's merit for bringing you on to shows, you know, to talk about and and give some sort of uh, counter narrative to the one that others s- s- supply. And so I guess I'm, I'm wondering, have either of you ever been invited to be on any of the Sunday morning talk shows um, or any other you know political program to offer these different perspectives? And if not, why do you think that is? Is it the role of the media plays, and Chris, I know we talked about this in my Human Rights and Media class, um, but is it that these narratives are not welcome in the discourse? Are you guys not serious because you provide, you know, serious, quote unquote, because you provide, um, you, know, crit- you know, critical analysis of these? And uh, uh, Chris, why don't you start, and then? Well, it's a really
1: interesting question. I mean, unfortunately, my, my invitation to the Sunday talk show seems to get lost every week. I, I, I get up, and I'm, not, I'm never invited. Um, yeah, there, there is an issue here. Um, when I did my original investigation into the deliberate targeting of rescuers, as, as you know, that has been uh, described as a potential war crime by two UN investigators. And in fact, there is an ongoing UN investigation Uh, into that right now. Um, 18 months into that UN investigation, we've had follow-up field studies by Amnesty International and by NYU Stanford that have found corroborative evidence for deliberate targeting of rescuers in the field. Still not a single US news agency or news organization that I'm aware of has ever covered that story. And I find that remarkable. You have Obama accused of potential war crimes. This all took place during Obama. These began in April 2009. You have the UN investigating the United States for potential war crimes. Uh, It's accessible. It's possible to get out there. It's, 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 It's possible to nail this down and say, did it happen? Did it not? And as far as I know, not a single US news organization has chosen to engage with that story. And I do think this raises some really complicated issues that are not really about drones. They're about Obama. They're about this administration, the, the collapse of the anti-war movement when Bush left office, um, but also a desire by the media to constantly portray things in a certain way. There's a whole chapter of my um, forthcoming book that really is the voices of dissent from within the United States uh, government, military and intelligence machines. And just to be absolutely clear, there is significant discomfort and unease at the highest levels of government, at the highest levels of the diplomatic service and at the highest levels of the intelligence community. I spoke with very high-ranking former US intelligence officials for example who raised concerns about the legality of the present campaign. I spoke with former senior diplomats, for example, Dick Armitage, former Deputy Deputy Secretary of State, Cameron Munter, former U.S. ambassador to Pakistan, both of whom deep levels of discomfort at some of the aspects of the targeted killing uh, in Pakistan. And then we've had people like uh, Stan McChrystal, General Stan McChrystal, former head of JSOC, who went on to command uh, U.S. and international forces in Afghanistan, who's highly critical of the willingness of politicians to reach instantly for armed drones uh, in apparent response to any crisis. So we don't need to reach into uh, dissident journalists or or, um, uh, peace communities for voices of dissent. They're right there in Washington today. But nevertheless, the media just won't go there. It's a a narrative that I find very interesting and um, Talking to fellow journalists about this is always um, uh, very interesting. Just just as an example, the BBC, this is not restricted to the United States. The BBC's new North America editor filed his first blog post today. And that blog post is entitled, Obama, the Reluctant Warrior. Now, you can call Obama many things, but you cannot call him a reluctant warrior based on the facts. Seven countries Obama has taken the United States to war in uh, since he came to office in 2009. There's nothing reluctant about this man when it comes to being a warrior. And yet that's a trope that the media has not only created but curated and refuses to let go despite the evidence to the contrary. So there, there, there are challenges there. Um, that and, and there are far too few uh, voices, not just from outside the system, but from within the system, challenging the dominant narrative at the moment.
2: And I would just say that uh, in order to, uh, to get on the mainstream media, you have to, you know for sure whoever's going to invite you, which would be um, Hannity and What's the name of the other Fox guy? O'Reilly. O'Reilly, yeah. <laughs> that those guys, the only reason they want you in is to try to cut you off at the knees and to try to shame, embarrass, and whatever. I will never be on, on O'Reilly's show again because I refused to shut up when he didn't like what I was saying, and I just kept talking and talking and talking over him until finally, with his secret cutoff microphone switch, he cut me off. and. I was still on the video, just still yapping, (laughs) you know, you can see that part, but I was cut off. Uh, Groups like CNN, MSNBC, interestingly, very seldom have voices uh, really challenging. Uh, Rachel Maddow, Chris uh, Hayes, they've got their own people they go to, but it's seldom truly, truly critical of uh, of administration policies. Uh, Some other people that uh, keep keep looking for their names. Larry Wilkerson, former Chief of Staff to Colin Powell, Secretary of State. He is challenging our government's policies on many, many fronts these days. And he he has been a real insider for a full military career and then as Chief of Staff as Colin Powell, Secretary of State. Uh, some of the CIA folks who are challenging it, uh, people who have been retired a little while, like Ray McGovern, but he still got contacts within the CIA. Uh, But these voices, it's very difficult. Other than like uh, press TV, you know, the Iranian TV, they'll put you on, uh, on their English language. Russia Today will put you on. Uh, But CNN, um, Fox News as a regular news thing, they go back to the people who were wrong 11 years ago on Iraq. They were wrong on Afghanistan, and yet they're the ones that they will go to to uh, find out what's going on now.
3: I don't know if you can, there we go, Okay. I'd like to thank you both for being here today. Um, I just wanted to speak and ask, on behalf of the nature, what has been presented today of drones, um, there is this perception of a planned assassination. But in fact, um, it seems that the ratio has been proven of civilian casualties to be extremely um, unsettling. And I'm just curious, based on clearly the media, there's um, a lot of kind of covering up going on, but also, so what kind of rhetoric, when in the face of international organizations, does our government give um, when being being accused of of this this kind of criminal war? So what comes from our administration when you know they're being told that these assassinations um, are are in fact planned but killing civilians? Uh, is there something kind of specifically that the Obama administration says that? can
2: go around this. Well, I'll just,
3: uh, I'll start out.
2: Uh, You know there's something fishy when the administration won't let uh, become public uh, the legal justification that they're using, the legal (coughs) documentation, the legal memorandum, which they are going to rely on someday in court uh, for why they're doing that. They refuse to make it public. And as Chris mentioned earlier, they refuse to and really give out any statistics that they're using on who actually has been killed. I mean, they, most of the time in Pakistan and many times in Afghanistan, they don't have boots on the ground to actually check it out, or in Yemen either. So they, but they still have this continuous, almost 24-hour coverage by drones uh, of, of what's happened. So they, over hours and hours, they're still watching as people are digging out, digging out people from the rubble uh, so they know much more about it than, uh, than they're willing to give to us, and um, that just lends to the suspicion that um, we're not being given any accurate information at all by our government.
1: I, just to come in on that, just, just a couple of days ago in Geneva, uh, there was a meeting of the UN uh, Human Rights Council in relation to this ongoing UN investigation, Uh, The UN investigation team picked out 30 problematic airstrikes, drone strikes carried out by the US, Britain and Israel. Um, It hasn't taken a view on those, but it has put forward the the widely held public view. Each of those strikes uh, appears to have resulted in significant civilian casualties. Despite the Obama administration having asserted that it wants to be more transparent, It aggressively blocked uh, any attempt to raise that subject at the UN uh, Human Rights Council this week, and then uh, effectively uh, chose not to take part or to enter that discussion at all when it was taking place in Geneva. The same happened with the United Kingdom and with Israel. So these countries just... um, (laughs) They don't really uh, want to walk the walk when it actually comes to discussing the issue of casualties. And to be fair to the Obama administration, I think they, they have gone significant lengths, for example, in Pakistan to reduce civilian casualties. I mean, without a doubt, since late 2010, we have seen a steep fall in civilian casualties in Pakistan as the CIA came under pressure to do so, both from the Pakistan government and also from public opinion. But then across the border in Afghanistan right now, because we're seeing a shift away from conventional troop operations to special forces and drone activity, the UN is recording a one-third rise in civilian casualties in Afghanistan because of drone strikes. And if I go to uh, CENTCOM and try and get that data for for a conventional war and civilian casualty data, uh, data, I'm now told that that data is, 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 is withheld on grounds of national security, uh, not even operational security, which is how it used to be. They, they've reclassed it as uh, being withheld on grounds of national security. So I don't think that the US does itself any favors when it comes to transparency. Uh, and it, it does leave itself open to propaganda exercises by others um, because of that information vacuum. The worst example of that was in Somalia. A couple of years back, again, the Bureau of Investigative Journalism that I was with, uh, one of my colleagues at the time, a young journalist called Emma Slater, found uh, more than 70 cases where, in fact, Press TV, that same Iranian TV company, had effectively fabricated 70 uh, supposed US drone strikes in in Somalia and reported them as such. And nobody in the administration was challenging that because of the the, the silence that they were maintaining on the strike. um, the, 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 the silence carries risk, actually, and it allows others to start to dictate the agenda uh, and even to di- dictate facts on the ground, false as they sometimes might be.
4: I guess it's my turn. First, uh, my name is Ibrahim al Hajibi. I am a Yemeni citizen, and I'm also the president of the Yemeni American Society in Minnesota. And first, I want to thank you very much for your work on behalf of the voiceless uh, people of Yemen and Pakistan, Afghanistan, Somalia. So I'm very troubled by what's happening in my country and elsewhere. Uh, Yemen is the poorest country in the Middle East. Yemeni ha- Yemen has 25 million people and 60 million guns. Um, very gun culture. We have most weapons per capita after the United States. So, and also, socioeconomic problems are all over. And then when you add drones, that makes Yemen the most fertile place for recruitment in the world, I think. And also we have political instability, we have separationists. In the south, we have any kind of problem you could think about is, is we have it in Yemen. Besides you visited Yemen. Yemen is a very beautiful country, very friendly people. So if you could talk about, and also uh, I must add that about more than half of the people in Guantanamo are Yemenis. There's 168 people and more than 80 are Are Yemeni. So that makes Yemen a very fertile place for recruitment. So my question is, could you speak more about drones role in recruitment, uh, especially especially in Yemen and also because I'm not totally against drones. I think drones could be helpful if there's more intelligence on the ground. So could you also speak about that? Thank you very much.
2: Chris, shall I go first and then you? (laughs)
4: <laughs> yeah, pl- please do, Anne. Yeah.
2: Right. Well, one of the very interesting things that we found when we were in Yemen is uh, uh, the fact that the United States government was uh, kind of helping out the, the, go- the Yemenese government and kill people that the Yemenese government needed to have killed and re- that, who weren't necessarily any sort of threat to U.S. national interests. We had several people that were coming from various areas into Sana'a uh, the capital where we were. We, it, uh, we were unable to travel out to uh, some of the main drone areas because it was too dangerous, but we were uh, people came in to talk with us and uh, they told us stories of uh, people who had actually been in prison, who had been in prison <laughs> and then had been released from prison and let to go home, but they were told that you have to come back into Sanaa to check in with us so that we know you know you're here, that you haven't gone or a field and all that sort of stuff, and that uh, all too often, um, after a couple of months or so, suddenly when the person went back out to their home in the regions, um, uh, they were a part of the group that was now targeted and killed, and the human rights uh, person that we were talking to said, that person actually had nothing, as far as we can determine, they had nothing to do with any sort of militant actions. but. Somehow they had gotten crosswise again with the government in Sana'a on other reasons, not on, on national security reasons, and that it is a very common practice that uh, tracking devices are now uh, kind of put into to cars, into people's pockets when they come in to be at a police station to sign in, I'm here again, and all of a sudden somebody pats them on the back and some sort of a tracking device put on them and then a drone hits them 24 hours later, so there's a lot of very sordid stuff that goes on, and the United States, I think, in many ways, is being used by governments to do its work, its dirty work, on its own citizens. I'll stop with that.
1: Ibrahim, um, thank, thanks for your question, and, and yeah, the, the, the Yemen situation is is hugely problematic, and, and I get, getting very little coverage at the moment because of events in Iraq and Syria, but. Um, you know, there is there is an ongoing series of uh, three- or even four-way um, uh, civil dispute. Uh, is possibly the nicest way of putting it, with Houthis at the moment in, in the capital, Sana, and, and is, could you call it a revolution or whatever. There are so many players in Yemen, uh, of which Al-Qaeda is one. Uh, and I don't, by the way, underestimate the threat that Al-Qaeda represents in Yemen. It's been the origin of most uh, transnational and international terrorist uh, plots targeted at the United States since 2009. Most plots to bring down airliners have originated from Yemen, for example. It's a significant terrorist organization. But predominantly, it's focused domestically uh, within Yemen, where it is but one faction of a very complicated and messy situation, particularly post the Arab Spring. Are drones helping in that environment? That is a very contentious question. Uh, Dr. Gregory Johnson has written extensively on this. His contention is that Al-Qaeda is four or five times stronger today than it was uh, when the US began bombing it. Having said that, we've had the Arab Spring intervening and all sorts of other issues as well. Um, But I have spoken to uh, former senior Pentagon officials who, who, who ask whether America is involved in the right war in Yemen, um, and also what the end goal of that war actually is. We're five years into US targeted killings in Yemen now, and it cannot be said that Yemen is a safer place today for Yemenis, nor can it be said that Al-Qaeda represents any less of a threat to the United States. So. There is this uh, rather ugly phrase, uh, mowing the grass, which has been used in relation both to Israeli and American drone strikes. This idea that we keep the militant population at a low level by using, for example, drones to kill individuals. If that is a policy, unspoken, it's a very dangerous one. And as we've seen in Pakistan, it can have perverse consequences some of the militant leaders killed by the united states in pakistan have been replaced by far more dangerous far more psychopathic individuals whose actions towards the united states and towards pakistan and pakistanis have been far worse so it's 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 absolutely clear that al-qaeda in yemen needs dealing with it's not clear to me that drones are the solution that we actually need right now. What Yemen most needs is stable government, international aid, international support, and uh, and as Ibrahim was saying, really a demilitarizing of of the culture. Yemen could split three ways any, any week now. It is a very unstable country. Pouring more weaponry in there is a problem. And we're doing exactly the same, by the way, in Syria. Uh, where we have a three-way civil war at the moment. And the, the, the Western response to that seems to be, well, let's make ourselves a fourth party in the civil war. This is, <laughs> this is not, in my view, the best way to actually uh, de-escalate uh, these hugely delicate situations in an entire region now, which is um, at risk of, of falling into war. I think the risk of a broad regional uh, war through the Gulf and up into the Middle East has never been greater in my view and and simply throwing weapons at that uh, problem is is not where we should be at the moment
2: and i 'll just add one other piece to it. Uh, if you think about the last year and a half and the number of attacks major attacks that have happened in the capital of sanaa uh, where groups armed groups have come in, and it's not necessarily Al-Qaeda. It's, it, in my, what I've been reading, it's groups that are dis, disaffected, disenchanted with what the government's doing, and because so many people have been killed by these drone strikes, out in the far regions, they have mounted groups of people to go into the capital, and they overran the Ministry of Defense, killing over 100 people in in the Ministry of Defense. So these things really do have long-term consequences when you... When you really get people angry because you're you're assassinating people that have done nothing at all.
0: Just a quick another note to something Chris said, you know, President Salah, the former president of Yemen, I'm um, Sana Sayyid Salah, if you if for those of you who haven't read it or are interested, uh, you know, in dirty wars really um, provides a lot of information and evidence for this relationship and how Salah would use you know the US military essentially to carry out its Know, opposition uh, to attack political opposition, in some cases insurgents for sure. Um, but by and, and he would sort of play up uh, certain elements to get greater funding, to get you know, more weapons sold, and also for the United States to directly participate in conflict that was really a uh, conflict in Yemen, uh, but the US was taking part in it, um, whether knowingly or not. So. Okay, um. Thanks.
5: Um, I want to join everyone who said thank you again. uh, This is a lot more fun than studying tax law. So um, I just wanted to ask, because the one thing that I saw that um, perhaps was different between um, your viewpoints there was the potential for drone strikes to be effective. And while you just talked about that a little bit more, I kind of want to briefly go over, um, sort of, if, with your background in the military, um, if you think that there's the potential for them to be effective in saving lives, or if not, then what is the fundamental nature of drone strikes that, that precludes them from being um, worthy as instruments of the military? Um, so that disconnect from having a person decide uh, who's, who's going to live, because definitely there's the potential. I mean, when you, when you bring in soldiers, definitely you're going to lose civilian life as well. Um, and then, so just briefly, briefly that I ask that, and then um, sort of more broadly. Uh, because you, you, you mentioned, I'm sorry I didn't get your, your last name, but uh, you, you mentioned how there are dissidents within the United States government who, who voice their opposition to these drone strikes. And um, I mean, that's, that's true on some level. But what is the potential for actually um, seeing, seeing those eventualities in, in, in um, proliferation of drone strikes and when there's such a disconnect between the objectives of the government and the objectives of the citizenry, um, without I mean, where what what can you do without go, going for a whole um, overthrow of the government?
2: Well, it, it's a good point. You know, from the military perspective, if you uh, you want to do everything you can do to prevent the loss of life of your own soldiers, so. From their perspective, it's yeah, well, let's use that because we don't have to get there on the ground. The other part of it could be also, for those that are on the ground, uh, the people that are getting slammed by these um, uh, drones uh, are saying that's a pretty chicken shit way to, of fighting. You know, particularly in this area where where, you know, if you're you get out there as a you know as a man. You know, having these things come in from from the air that's that's pretty. Uh, uh, chicken chip uh, so when you do have those soldiers that are on the ground I think there's a greater ferocity toward them because of the use of these things uh, and also as I mentioned before I mean one of the things you have to look at is the the blowback of any particular weapon system and if you find that you're actually getting more you're, you're you're getting more blowback than the effectiveness of it. And that's where I think our military is not telling the truth on these things, and particularly in Afghanistan, where you do see that the blowback, in my opinion, of Afghan soldiers and police that are actually now killing US military, more than the Taliban is killing US military, uh, that the, the possibility, or in my opinion, the probability is that the families of these guys that are willing to shoot our, our soldiers in very confined spaces where they know they're going to get killed for doing this is probably related back that they have family and friends that are part of that tribal region that have been, you know, the, the 2,000 people in Pakistan that have been killed there, that there's a direct relationship to that. And as far as, uh, you know, speaking out while you're in the U.S. government, I mean, that's why I had to resign. Because you, you can't speak out. Uh, I mean, your job is to uphold the policies of whatever person it is that the American public elects. And in order to really speak out publicly, you have to resign on that. And um, then once you resign, the, whether or not the voice will be covered by media so that you can get to a wider range of people. You do a lot of writing of articles and things like that. And if you really look at uh, many of the articles that have been written that are very critical about uh, the use of assassin drones, uh, they are written by former uh, government employees.
1: Okay, um, j- just to come in there, the, 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 ef- the effectiveness question, I think, is really interesting. Um, the British uh, now say that four out of five of all of their airstrikes in Afghanistan are carried out by drones. Dray- by remotely piloted aircraft. It's a huge shift in warfare uh, that we are seeing for those countries that have armed drones. Uh, Nevertheless, the British assert that they, in hundreds of drone strikes they've now carried out in Afghanistan, on only one occasion have they killed civilians. Um, Four civilians died in one particular strike. Now, there is some discussion and debate around that. But when you talk to British officials, what they say is, well, we don't carry out an airstrike unless there is a zero expectation of civilian casualties and this is a position that neither the United States nor Israel will entertain presently and this is why I made the point earlier that the benefits of armed drones on the battlefield or potential benefits over other weapon systems aren't worth a fig unless there's the associated political will to reduce civilian casualties on the battlefield and uh, I cite examples in my book, for example, where British crews are taken off combined missions and replaced with American crews because the British refuse to kill individuals. uh, And they're then swapped out for American crews uh, to kill individuals. So there's a more fundamental issue underlying this, which is the United States' present attitude towards civilian deaths on the battlefield. And I'm not for a moment saying that US military personnel are gung-ho about civilian deaths. Quite the opposite. I spoke to many, many present and former drone operators for my book, and to a man and woman, they were horrified at the thought of ever killing civilians. But nevertheless, there is a permissiveness environment, if you like, on the modern battlefield that's not restricted to, say, the CIA strikes in Pakistan, where an overemphasis is sometimes placed on protecting... American troops and a de-emphasis of protecting civilian lives. And where that that can go horribly wrong is in a counterinsurgency environment where the preservation of civilian life is probably the number one thing the military is trying to do, because that's what will win them a war, or at least prevent them from losing a war. Um, When Stanley McChrystal took over in Afghanistan, uh, he had a private meeting with all of the heads of uh, NATO military, where he said, quote, if we don't stop killing civilians, uh, we're going to lose this fucking war. Um, He didn't say that publicly. He did say that privately. And that was his analysis back in 2009. You don't fight wars anymore by killing civilians. The days of, of, of even significant civilian deaths have gone uh, because of precision strikes and so on. But as our expectations around precision rise, so the expectations of civilians themselves not to be the victims of our airstrikes also rise. And where a 100 civilian deaths might have been tolerated 15, 20 years ago, for example, in the Serbian, various Serbian conflicts, perhaps today we'll only tolerate 10 civilian deaths. So expectations around civilian deaths have shifted profoundly. Um, I do think drones have a potential um on the battlefield uh, if i were a civilian on the battlefield and i have been on many battlefields i would really rather know that it was an armed drone above me than have an f-16 come in or indiscriminate artillery fire coming in because my chances of survival are that much greater but that's only drains of course in their present iteration small drains using small explosives who knows what we're going to have above the battlefield in 20 years um, so uh, it, it's something that we have to keep an eye on.
4: Hi, uh, my name is Abdullah oh. Kenne. My name is Abdullah Kenne, and um, I'm a second year grad student major in ethnic peace and global affairs. I have a two questions, and uh, my second question, actually, I think Chris has already talked about it. So um, going to the first question, it seems like uh, the White House has more control over the drone um, strike than Congress. My first question will be, does Congress know anything? Does Congress really know? what is going on at all. And the second question will be about civilian casualty. Um How are civilian casualties avoided and counter?
1: Can I jump in on that first hand, do you mind? Sure, please. I, I, this congressional oversight, it's a really good question of dollar. Um, US targeted killings with armed drones began in 2002. Systematic congressional oversight began in 2010. So for eight years, there was no effective oversight by the Senate or House Intelligence Committees of the activities of the CIA and JSOC in terms of targeted killings. Uh, There was an aspect of oversight, I'm told, by former intelligence officials. But it was a very ad hoc affair and would effectively involve uh, casual phone calls made after the fact around particularly problematic or challenging strikes. So eight years of an assassination program with no effective congressional oversight, I think, is, is the answer to your question, Abdullah. It's, um, we are in a situation where the courts were excluded, where Congress was excluded, and the drones were effectively a manifestation of executive power for a substantial part of their use and the development of their use. That has changed with the Obama administration. So in early 2010, you get both the House and uh, Senate Intelligence Committees becoming more proactive under Diane Feinstein and, and uh, Mike Rogers at the H, uh, HPSCI. Um, there is scrutiny, uh, and it is significantly better than it was. Um, my problem with it is that sometimes the scrutiny is, appears to be too soft and i have challenged for example the senate intelligence committee on a couple of occasions where they claim to have investigated civilian casualties and claims of higher than uh, uh, so the cia just for context says that it's never killed more than 60 civilians in pakistan all public monitoring organizations and the pakistan government Place the number of civilian casualties and drone strikes at around 400. So that's a huge disparity between the two. Um, Diane Feinstein has effectively supported the CIA's position uh, and said that uh, the, the Senate Intelligence Committee uh, agrees with them. But when I then approached every monitoring organization and every NGO that had done significant field work on civilian casualties in Pakistan, they all told me they had never been contacted by any member of or staffer of the Senate or House Intelligence Committees. So uh, too often, I think, still, congressional oversight is a closed loop. It is a conversation between Congress and the intelligence communities, without really engaging more broadly, uh, as I think it should be, on such a contentious and problematic issue.
2: And I would add that the only reason the Congress is really getting involved is because of citizen activism. It's because we have had so many people that have been arrested at drone bases and. Uh, Creech Air Base in Nevada, Hancock Air Base in New York and Beale Air Base in California, Whiteman Air Base in Missouri uh, that has caused a, a bit of publicity about what, what's been going on that has kind of forced some of the Congress people to, uh, to look more closely at it. Uh, we've, we've nabbed a couple of congressional staffers in the hallway after some hearings on primarily the confirmation of Mr. Chief Drone Assassin himself. John Brennan who was on the National Security Council before he was confirmed as CIA director. So you take the head of drones from the National Security Council and put him in charge of the the CIA. So you're going to have a continuous program. Well, during all the hearings on his confirmation, we uh, found a couple of staffers outside uh, for the House or the Senate uh, Intelligence Committee uh, who said that now they are they as staffers are now watching some of the. Um, some of the drone filming of the uh, of the shootings that they do. That they are, that they can see it themselves and they help count out what they think are militants or what they think are civilians. And we said, well, okay, so you the staffers, you get to see it. I mean, but what about the rest of us? I mean, do we trust you as the staffers? To, do you know what you're doing in counting these things out? Um, so, yeah, the there is a bit more of oversight, but I don't think we, the public, are getting much more information out of that oversight. And I don't think the oversight is actually really doing anything to um, um, uh, put the administration on notice that they should really be doing a, uh, you know, a, a, a more careful job uh, in preventing civilian casualties.
0: Just to a to the transparency and, and Congress's role, uh, there was an attempt to get uh, a bill passed that would have required the Obama administration to release the civilian casualties just from the previous year, not from the entire program, but just from one year previous. And Congress couldn't even pass that legislation. And of course, part of that was was pressure from the administration not to pass it. Um, but and this was when there's been a significant decrease in the number of civilian casualties because of the decrease in the use of drones in Yemen and Pakistan, um, but we couldn't even get the numbers from 2013 to be, you know, numbers of the casualties open to the public because, as Chris said, it's being labeled as a threat to national security to reveal any of this information around the system. Hi.
5: Um,
4: despite either of you mentioning it, uh, I think billions mm-hmm. of people on this earth are aware that this so-called terrorism and the response in form of drones or whatever it be to it, is an exactly intended result of Western foreign policy, particularly British brilliance in divide and conquer, and uh, you know chaos creates this perfect marketplace for us to sell our weaponry. Are you very proud of that, Chris, uh, that legacy, that wonderful British legacy that continues to disintegrate our world?
1: Uh, Well, I'm probably as proud of that as some of the sort of rather terrible things that have happened in America. Now, we're not responsible individually, of course, for the actions of our government. Uh, My government is uh, significantly weaker than it would like to think it is. Uh, And just to remind you, when uh, the present administration in the UK decided it was going to go gung ho and start bombing Syria 18 months ago, it was the British Parliament that slapped down the executive by a vote and said no uh, so uh, yeah my government has done some terrible things uh, both historically and recently uh, but it is not a government that can act as it wishes when it wishes um, uh, you know it's terrorism and uh, of course, you know, the, the, the origins of Al Qaeda are hugely complicated and, and clearly tied up with, you know, the war against the Russians in Afghanistan, the billions of dollars of British, uh, uh, American, and Saudi money that was poured into the tribal areas, uh, a significant amount of which ended up making its way to the coffers of groups like Al Qaeda eventually. Um, yes, it's messy. And, you know, Islamic State today. Uh, is, in my view, a direct consequence of British and American intervention in Iraq in 2003. And I, as a reporter, I covered the invasion of Iraq, and I went back to that uh, poor, benighted country every year afterwards up until 2009 and saw it slide ever deeper into chaos and was profoundly aware of my country's uh, role in that disaster. you know, is it a is it a specific British policy of divide? No, I, I just think it's an arrogance of of politicians and a willingness to forget even the near uh, recent past. I I, I found it absolutely stunning that in 2014 we are going back into Iraq after everything that happened there. Uh, and everything that our respective governments were involved in. I I, I say that as an individual who covered that conflict and and saw firsthand how very, very, very wrong it went and how much uh, death and destruction we brought on on that country. Um, And I do think, and I absolutely do think, that that our actions in Iraq and Syria at the moment simply risk playing straight into the hands of organizations like islamic state it is the easiest recruitment tool for these terror organizations to say look they're back they're back they never really wanted to go away um, and uh i i, uh, I, I, I found up the state department uh, the week before last when john kerry was doing his rounds around islamic state uh, and uh, i asked how many uh, meetings had kerry had Uh, with the United Nations or with senior UN figures uh, relating to uh, US diplomacy um, uh, around Islamic State uh, and the, the, the attempt to build an international coalition. None was the answer. And I did find that an extraordinary answer, that not one meeting had been set aside between the United States and the United Nations in what was clearly going to become another war very quickly um, the, 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 you know. The, anyway, I think I'll leave it there. But uh, yes, my country does terrible things. No, I'm not accountable for it. Yes, I wish they'd they'd behave rather better sometimes. Hi. Uh,
6: thanks so much for coming. I was just wondering, because in discussions of drones, an argument that often comes up is the supposed lack of alternatives in dealing with dangerous groups like Al-Qaeda. And I was wondering if you guys could uh, mention some alternatives that might exist.
2: I'll, I'll mention from, you know, in 2001, 2002, some of the alternatives to, like, a military intervention um, and occupation of Afghanistan, um, I, I can remember vividly being in Afghanistan and thinking, hmm, man, uh, our, first our CIA, then our military forces in there, and going after what really was a small group of people. I mean, we initially, uh, the goal of the United States government was not to take down the Taliban. It was to go after Al-Qaeda. And it was like, you know, these guys have already squirted out. They're already in Pakistan. What are we going to do? When you really look at it, the international police uh, investigations, um, it, but it doesn't satisfy uh, the war hunger, the bloodthirstiness that I think America has. I think we are a very warmongering country, not only our government, but a a greater portion of our citizenry, firmly believe that war is the answer to everything. And by God, let's bomb them. Just bomb them. If they've done something to us, let's just go bomb them and that'll get rid of it. When you really look at at how many of Al-Qaeda were captured, rolled up, so to speak, by the international community, there were more of them that actually were captured and through international police work, then were killed in Afghanistan. Uh, but that didn't satisfy what needed to happen in the eyes of George Bush and a lot of our government after the horrible, horrible events of 9-11, where 3,000 people were killed. And it was like, if we can't kill at least 3,000, then it's not, I mean, we're not doing our job. So I think the, we, we have a streak in the American public of retaliation and revenge, and you can see it play out over decades. If you look at revolutions that the United States does not like, try the old Cuban revolution where we still have a quarantine or a blockade on Cuba from america we 're the only ones left with it, but you know um, let 's you know never let the rest of the world do do things when we think we have to have a blockade on somebody. How about Iran you know from the uh, revolution in '79. Boy, we still—we are not going to forget about that, and we are going to retaliate. I mean, that's the way America seems to work, and I think we—we we end up jeopardizing our own national security by this type of approach.
1: I, I, I um, would generally agree with, with, with what Anna said there. If you look at both Pakistan and Yemen. Um, predominantly I mean what what happened before the drones? This is a this is a really important question. You know, there is a period after nine eleven, but before the drone strikes, where the predominant response to Al Qaeda was a law enforcement one. And in both Pakistan and Yemen, Al Qaeda was effectively rolled up in both countries. Um, in fact by the time of the first targeted killing assassination in Yemen in, in November two thousand and two, Most of those implicated in the USS Cole bombing, where 17 U.S. sailors had died the year before, had been incarcerated uh, by the Yemen government and were about to stand trial. And I'll throw one thought out, which I, I do think is worth bearing in mind, that that very first drone strike that took place, it killed six individuals, including an American citizen, and including the man who was thought to be one of the masterminds of the USS coal bombing. It's very poorly reported, but a seventh man actually survived that strike. He went on trial in Yemen, and it was a trial that was effectively before a closed secret court that was really not there to do that man any favours, and at a time of intensive cooperation between the Yemen and U.S. government, that man was found not guilty. And this this does raise some really profound questions about targeted killing. What was the status of the other six men who died that day? What would a court of law have decided had they gone before them? Would they have been acquitted? Would they have been found guilty? We'll never know, because they were extrajudicially killed, as some would have it, but certainly killed uh, without due process, uh, either in the host country or in the United States. So there are uncomfortable issues that targeted assassinations bring. And assumptions of guilt. You'll often read a newspaper report of there was a drone strike in Pakistan today that killed six militants. Well, I'm sorry, they were alleged militants. We don't know that they were militants. Uh, That uh, a group may later say, yes, six of our members got killed, or four of our members got killed, or whatever. Evidence may emerge around the sides. We can't assume the guilt of these individuals and and targeted killing off the hot battlefield. There were alternatives uh, before the drone strikes began. Uh, And I think those alternatives are still there, by the way.
0: Is there uh, any other questions we can make this? um, Why don't we have you ask, and then you ask. You guys can take the last two questions, and then we'll wrap up.
6: Hi. Um, so to kind of build on what she was saying, what Abraham was bringing up there. So there's been extensive research saying that you know the the joining of these terrorist organizations, which obviously are a real threat, um, has to, is linked to socio-economic backgrounds. Um, you know we've created the UN and we have methods such as peacekeeping and all these other things that are implemented on a small level, and, you know, you you watch, you spoke of the Geneva Convention, I haven't um, watched one for this year yet, but I was watching one from the last year, just the other day, to review, and you hear governments talk about this, and changing this from, you know, a root level, like a community level, to to stop these things, and there's a lot of research that shows if we do this, the majority of terrorist organizations won't really be be a problem. I mean, you're still going to have those few individuals, like you said, like psychopaths and whatnot. Um, but you know, and you spent time in the military. So what do you what do you think is the do you think the real like realistic solution? Because I just feel you know there's so many so many people oppose these things, but I feel like it's just never going to be implemented.
0: Yeah, well, again, I we just want to have so <laughs> you guys can take the last two together. Yeah, um, I'd like to get your comments about the role of private defense contractors in the policy of drone strikes. Uh, what sort of financial incentives are there for governments basically to uh, purchase these drones? How much, uh, uh, how much revenue have they made since 2002, since the first drone strike, and uh, which companies are behind the manufacture of the drones and the missiles, uh, and do they push governments in any way to basically adopt uh, policies that they may find lucrative?
2: how about if I take the first part, uh, you know, the whole issue of how you recruit people into uh, into your organization, an organization that may want to take down governments or whatever it is. Well, in, in general, there is some bit of truth to what uh, groups uh, have to say about their opposition to governments, that they're not providing the social, uh, they aren't providing jobs. Uh, there's graft, corruption, uh, people aren't getting good health care, education, all this stuff. So there's, you know, there's, a, there's more than a kernel of truth to this. I mean, it's, in fact, uh, governments uh, in these regions are not helping their people, and the people are dissatisfied. And if you look at, you know, in, in Iraq, there was great dissatisfaction with what Saddam Hussein was doing, uh, although you could look at education and health, and he was doing pretty good on that. Uh, there's dissatisfaction a bit uh, of what's going on in Syria. Uh, people were taking up arms, but there are the, the groups that then pile on to say, whoa, okay, there's social dissent. We're going to go in and we with, we're going to try to pull off these people that are, uh, uh, that are challenging their government and then try to radicalize them into what we really want them to be doing. So you know, it's trying trying to get governments to recognize that they they really need to listen to the demands of the people, and that the graft and corruption that's on the top that is siphoning off billions of dollars that should be going to health and education that it's in their best interest that they go ahead and do that. But in in fact, for the United States, we have uh, we have supported many of these governments, and uh, then when you know the push comes to shove the the grassroots start organizing trying to get uh, get the government to listen to them sometimes we go ahead and protect that government for a while i mean you look at some of the greatest allies of america saudi arabia right now where they you know beheadings are a common thing there the, the, there's so many social issues there and yet it's they're one of our uh, you know allies in this so um, yeah, the, the, listening to the people and getting governments to respond to the issues of the people legitimately, uh, I think can uh, cut off uh, the the stream of people that are recruited into these m- much more radical organizations. Chris, why mm. don't you take the part about uh, how much money people contractors yeah. are making?
1: I was I was going kind to of very briefly say on that that that. Uh, terrorism groups question, I mean obviously here in the UK we we had a significant terrorist problem uh, relating to Ireland and and, uh, Northern Ireland uh, that went on for many decades and we now have a situation where the former commander of the Irish Republican Army, a a, a former terrorist group as far as my government was concerned, uh, is now the elected uh, deputy leader of the Northern Ireland Assembly. And has twice sat down and had tea with the Queen of England. Um, I, I say that because it is we get locked into this idea that terrorism can only be defeated militarily. But at the heart of most terrorist groups are, as as you rightly said, socio-economic or political, geographic issues, and resolution through means other than military are possible. I'm not saying it's 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 a given, but it's a possibility. And I think we should bear that in mind. Where things get more complicated, of course, is with a group like Al-Qaeda, which marries an ideological position with um, a desire to inflict mass civilian casualties, uh, effectively through um, uh, the equivalent of, of weapons of mass destruction, uh, commandeering uh, civil infrastructure um, to, to, to inflict uh, huge casualties on civilian populations. And that is a very difficult kind of terrorism to engage with. Um, and I I don't think that's a new phenomenon, but I think uh, in terms of its scale of ambition and longevity, it's. Um, Al-Qaeda has a particular challenge for us where some of the response, or indeed much of the response, probably does have to be military uh, on an international basis. Um, In terms of the role of uh, private defense contractors, um, really, I mean, there's been a monopoly on armed drones. In the United States, General Atomics, uh, the sole manufacturer of the Predator and Reaper. um, uh, 2001, when it was armed all the way through to, I think, 2011, when the Switchblade, the small tactical weaponized drone, began to be deployed by special forces. Um, You know, defense companies make a lot of money from war, and they've made... A reasonable amount of money from armed drones. Interestingly, by the way, armed drones are not expensive, relatively. Um, you know, an F 22 fighter can be half a billion dollars. Uh, a Predator drone probably costs the US Treasury uh, $15 million. So, um, yes, there's, there's, there's money in drones, but um, not actually compared to some of the big, uh, big budget defense projects. Um, but, obviously, that will change over time. And as, as the uh, US uh, shifts more and more to um, to armed drones, on uh, uh, different kinds of armed drones, both strategic as well as tactical, uh, you're going to see more of a gold rush from uh, defense firms trying to get in on that, obviously.
2: I think there's some, something like 500 corporations in America that are making uh, some type of drone or drone components. And so, as Chris said, the Predator and the Reaper are done by General Atomics, but there, is a, there are a whole series of other ones, starting from little bitty tiny ones that could be used for uh, surveillance uh, in your home by flying through a window, you know, little tiny, tiny things to uh, things that are, uh, you know, less than what a, a drone, a Reaper or a Predator are, but still a pretty substantial size. Uh, and it is a great growth industry here in the United States, and I think the the estimates are something like eight billion dollars a year going into it, which is not a chump change really compared to the huge array of other types of military equipment that uh, the United States uh, purchases. But it's a it's a, a growing industry, and 80 countries in the world now have drones and uh, have uh, are developing different types of drones there to include iran china russia thank
0: you i, I was going to say what, what they don't have of course is the infrastructure that we've already developed uh, you on your slides you had the number of bases that currently or drone bases we currently have around the world so even as others develop this technology they don't have necessarily the same ability to use them rapidly and geographically the, the way that the United States currently can. So, But anyway, I just wanted to add that. Let's uh, give them a, a warm thank you. Oh, we have an, an,
2: and If I could just make one more announcement. On October uh, 4th, we do have uh, the Global Day of Action on drones. And here in Washington, D.C., there will be an action down at the Air and Space Museum because that's where they have exhibits <coughs> of uh, various kinds of drones that the United States has. And actually, I don't have the time on it. I've... I would suspect about noon, or we can send out an email if you've put your name on uh, one of our sign-up lists that we have. So we'd love to have you all there. Also, if I could just mention that, you know, today we, we have the use of U.S. drones that are in Iraq and Syria, as well as Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Somalia. Uh, we do have an action that has been going on in front of the White House uh, today at noon, and then there will be a vigil tonight at 7 o'clock. And uh, we would appreciate uh, your uh, consideration of coming down to uh, trying to stand as a voice for um, non-military operations and trying to resolve issues. Thank you. Mm.
0: <laughs> Chris, thank you uh, again for joining us, and uh, you know I'll, I'll be dropping your line later on. And uh, yeah, and yeah, thanks again. We appreciate it. A
1: real pleasure. Thanks for having me today. Thanks.
0: So, yeah, I just want to note also the, um, you know, it's, I know that sometimes it, it's, help, it's helpful to know people there, uh, and I assume you'll be there tonight. Uh, I'll be down there also, um, 7 o'clock at the White House.